Hello, and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast for the Lancet Neurology. It's June 2022, and I'm Gavin Cleaver. In our issue this month, we have two papers on Huntington's disease, one looking at the new integrated staging system for classifying cases of Huntington's, and another on disease-modifying therapies for Huntington's. I'm very pleased to be joined today by two of the authors of those papers, Sarah Tabritzi and Christina Sampau, and we're going to discuss the implications of their research. Professor Tabritzi, Professor Sampau, welcome. So my name is Sarah Tabrizi. I'm a professor of clinical neurology at UCL at the Queen Square Institute of Neurology. And I'm also the director of the UCL Huntington's Disease Centre. Hi, hello. I'm Christina Sampaio. I'm the chief medical officer at CHDI Foundation in Princeton, US. And I'm also professor of clinical pharmacology in the University of Lisbon in Portugal. Well, Christina, Sarah, welcome. It's a pleasure to have both of you. So perhaps we could start off then uh, talking about your work to to explain to our listeners why this new classification system for Huntington's disease was required. Okay, I I think I can pick up on that one. The, The importance of this system is that, in fact, there was no previous classification system in Huntington's disease. And it's uh, important to recognize that the disease span many decades of the life of an individual and people are not in the same phase of the process along all those years. So to have a system that really aggregates people in, in phases, in stages, that are, that have some commonalities in terms of uh, how they, they behave, what kinds of problems they have, and uh, how they will progress. So that have some prognostic value is critical to do clinical research. Not only to do clinical research, but to communicate the results of clinical research, not only among the scientific community, but also across uh, constituencies, uh, meaning speaking with regulators, speaking with policy makers, speaking with the families, it's important to have a common understanding of um, what we are speaking about. And having a stage is an important anchor to make that communication. So we, we feel that this is an extremely important tool to do clinical research going forward. But it's also, as you describe it there, like a hugely ambitious goal. So how do you even go about like approaching this task and then getting people involved? Uh, okay, so the first thing is there has been uh, um, already a number of similar projects in other areas, particularly in Alzheimer's disease. And we knew what that worked and what didn't work. Particularly in Alzheimer's disease, they, they were successful in the end, but it took them many, many years, uh, more than a decade, to come up with a staging system for Alzheimer's disease. So we knew from the start that we needed to have a very uh, large, broad group of people that would work together and make this an acceptable tool from the beginning. Of course, we also had a good foundation because we have the Antigtons uh, field have very large databases of data. So we had a, a good, uh, uh, let's say, background where to start the project. But to to get people together, we, we resorted to work within the space of an um, institution called CIPAS. The CIPAS Foundation is a non-profit that is st- established in the US, and the FDA is one of the founding members of CIPAS, and, and uh, uh, they established consortia, and so we established a consortium 
for Huntington's disease within the CPAS, and uh, they brought together companies that are working in this space, academics, and of course, non-profits. And so there is a very broad base of people. And then there was a working group that was doing, let's say, the groundwork. But um, uh, to answer your question, in fact, the, the key process was to bring everybody together. Then uh, the, it was extremely important to conduct an evidence-based project, an evidence-based development of the staging system, something that was not just a matter of opinion, because so far everything that exists in this space for HD, and as I said, we don't have a staging system that we are replacing, but every taxonomy, every process of, of addressing this issue of um, classifying patients have been based on opinion. And we have tried to develop an evidence-based uh, process that I believe we succeed, and that's what the paper reflects. There is a lot of data there. And so, yes, it was ambitious, but uh, everybody together, I think we made a good tool. So how do you anticipate the staging system is going to be used then in the first kind of instance? I think that, as Christina said, the staging system has been designed for clinical research. And by that, I think the predominant use will be in clinical trials because they, it will allow, as Christina mentioned, comparison between groups, comparison across modalities of therapeutic. And it will allow us to also have the regulatory framework and research framework to treat much earlier in the whole course of Huntington's disease and treat earlier in the disease years before people show obvious clinical signs of the disease. And to date, we haven't been able to do that because we needed a staging framework to allow us to have the regulatory framework to do that. It'll also be used in observational clinical research, which will then allow direct cross-comparison between groups across different observational studies, and that because everyone will be speaking one language, and we won't be using terms like pre-manifest, pre-symptomatic, prodromal, which are commonly used in neurodegenerative diseases, particularly in Huntington's disease, and it's not very clear what all of them mean. So the staging system really will, will empower clinical research and clinical trials. So is this going to be an iterative process? You know, are there more steps to come with this? So the staging system as it stands is um, set in stone in terms of the landmarks and the stages. But we're doing ongoing work because there are new biomarkers that are coming available, particularly, uh, for example, in CSF or in blood measures. And we are going to be able to incorporate the new data we get for example, in CSF measures, for example, CSF neurofilament, to be able to use them, particularly in the earlier stages of stage zero and stage one, where we may be able to stratify the groups. So it's dynamic and iterative in that new biomarkers may maybe become incorporated, but the staging framework and the landmarks won't change. So there's another paper in the, in the July issue of the Lancet Neurology, which is a personal view, of course, on potential disease-modifying therapies. Tell us a little bit about what you mean in this context by disease-modifying therapies. 
uh, I, I would say uh, that's a very important concept, and I would say it's not particular for this disease. The concept of disease-modifying therapies is a concept across medicine, and it's, it means that uh, the intervention, be it a drug, be it surgery, whatever intervention, uh, therapeutic intervention, is able to change the course of the disease. It's able to change how people progress along the disease, and ideally, of course, it will delay that progression, and by delaying the progression, delay the disability. The contrapoint to, to disease modification is what people call symptomatic treatments. And symptomatic treatments are very important. People, uh, we want that companies develop symptomatic treatments because they are, uh, they help the people have a better quality of life. But uh, what symptomatic treatments do is they, they relieve an existing symptom or a sign. And so the disease-modifying therapies have the ambition of, of changing the course so that people don't get to get the symptom. So that's the goal. And of course, at the moment, probably we can delay disability to a certain point, but we are not yet there. There are not a lot of interventions being developed, and that's what the paper speaks about. Yeah, so what are some of the main strategies that you're currently looking at for disease-modifying therapies in Huntington? We give an overview of everything that is in development for potential disease-modifying therapies. And we also talk about the state of the field. And we talk a lot uh, in particular about trials that have been stopped and what the reasons for that may be. So there are a number of approaches. The approaches that we cover are targeting the DNA, Huntington DNA, and the gene is on the Huntington DNA, and they're targeting the CAG repeat expansion or the mutation. And uh, those therapeutics are particularly around DNA repair molecules and trying to shrink the CAG repeat. We also have a large section of our uh, paper on ways of lowering the mutant Huntington mRNA message and the uh, uh, mutant Huntington protein. And in addition, uh, CRISPR techniques to try and switch off or, or cut out the CAG in the DNA. So the approaches are very much targeting the DNA with DNA repair and Huntington lowering through gene therapy, through antisense oligonucleotides, through interfering RNAs and small molecules that can target splicing of the mRNA. And really, it's an overview of what's happening now in May 2022. So how close are these therapies currently then for being available for patients? You know, we can say either they are very close or we are very far away. I, don't, I know that this is not a, a very uh, enthusiastic answer, but the fact is drug, uh, drug development is complicated, takes time, and we have been saying this all over. But of course, now people have the idea that with the COVID vaccines that we can just uh, click the, the fingers and uh, they happened. In neurodegenerative diseases, that's not so true. Uh, and although technology has advanced a lot, we have now, as Sarah already mentioned, uh, about four to five therapies that are in clinical uh, trials. So, if they are in clinical trials, uh, they still they can succeed. And if they they succeed, we might have a, a therapy approved in the space of five years. But they can all fail, and we should not forget that that is a true possibility. And so. 
if one of them survives, I, I believe we'll have a therapy in the next five years approved. If all of them fail, we have to start again. Yes, it's a... Uh... It's um, quite stark when you put it like that, isn't it? You're know, so close and so far away at the same time. Uh, Sarah, what are some of the main challenges in, in bringing these particular approaches to the clinic? I think, as Christina has said, drug development is very, very hard. Uh, and I think there's a long phase of what we call preclinical work, which is done in cells, animal models, and then large animals for looking for toxicity. And the therapeutic can fail at all of those points. So that's a slow process. And, and the toxicology has to be done very rigorously before these particularly innovative and evasive therapies go to patients. And so they can fail at any stage. They can also fail in the clinical trials. In the early phase, they may not be safe. Even when they go to phase three, they, they trials can fail for many different reasons. They fail to meet their primary endpoint. So the challenges are those of drug development. But the good thing about Huntington's at the moment, and I think that we summarise this in our paper, is there are lots of approaches in development. There's a lot of interest in Huntington's disease. It's a genetic dementia. It's, it's caused by a single gene. And there's a lot of interest in, in neurodegeneration because if we can make inroads into a disease like Huntington's disease, which is caused by a single genetic mutation, which is fully penetrant, it might be that for other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other dementias, that uh, targeting the brain may be tractable. So there's a lot in the pipeline, but as Christina said, there are challenges in the slow process of drug development and then testing them in patients, which takes a long time. Of course, of course. Well, I guess then to kind of wrap these two uh, papers together, how do you see the changing classification of stages of Huntington's disease being useful for the future development of these disease-modifying therapies? So it's a really important question. I think they tie critically together. One of the key problems and one of the uh, things that we talk about in our um, paper is the failure of the Generation HD1 Phase 3 trial of the antisense oligonucleotide, which was stopped early from the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Committee. And one of the things and the learning points that is coming out from that, and again, it's discussed at length in our paper, is stage of disease. And it, by the time patients have very quite severe symptoms of the disease, as in many neurodegenerative diseases, there is a concern that it might be potentially too late to treat with these therapies that are quite invasive. And so there's a whole move in neurodegenerative diseases that we have to treat earlier. We have to treat earlier to try and get the biggest benefit. And the staging system is going to allow us to do this. Because subjects with stage zero, stage one and stage two have typically not been recruited to trials. And now trials are being designed, particularly for this group. And we're starting with stage two and we're developing endpoints that can be used for that. And stage two was typically before symptom, overt symptom onset. And eventually we'll do it in stage zero and one. And that will be people 25 years before their predicted onset. And that may mean that actually we treat at a time when the brain is actually functioning very well, there's very little damage, and we might be able to prevent a symptom onset 
many years later. So I think it's a whole move towards uh, treating earlier in neurodegeneration. We know, for example, in the Spinraza trial and in the Spinraza studies, the subjects who have done best in that are the subjects who were treated, the children who were treated before they developed SMA, and they have gone on to not develop any symptoms at all. The people who have been treated much later in the disease and also subjects with adult onset SMA have not really had so much benefit. And I think that tells us in in many diseases, uh, um, a bit like even in cancer, if you treat stage one cancer, it, it is potentially curative. By the time it's metastasized, it may be too late to treat. And so this is the same analogy here. The staging system is going to allow us to treat earlier. Uh, the staging system is the, one of the pillars where we are building the opportunity to, to do these early clinical trials. It's not the only tool that is needed. We have to pursue the development of endpoints that reflect uh, the situation of the stage zero and one where there are very little expression of the disease state. And so it's a challenge, uh, uh, but we have to work now towards that and we have to work in in collaboration with the regulatory agencies and the health policy makers because people will not show changes in the typical endpoints that these uh, agencies are used to see. So we have to change the mentalities. And the other point I would like to make is access. Even if we are extremely successful and the, the community is successful and we bring a therapy to the market soon, if that therapy is a gene therapy uh, technique that demands uh, relatively high technology sites to deliver it, it will not help that people that are in low-income countries. And uh, many clusters of Huntington's disease that are big populations with Huntington's disease in low-income countries, mostly in Latin America. So we have to go through all these uh, oops one is to get the drug in the market, but the other is to get the drug to the patients. And so there are still challenges to solve there. Lots of challenges, but it sounds like a really exciting time. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak to you both today. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast and best of luck with future research. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Professor Debrizzi and Professor Sampao, and thanks to you for listening. If you're interested in reading these papers, you can find them online now at thelancet.com. If you're not already subscribed, then you can follow In Conversation With from The Lancet Neurology, as well as In Conversation With podcasts from a wide range of other Lancet journals, wherever you usually get your podcasts.